0: And welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I get to talk about really cool stuff that I learned, and you get to listen, if you want. I'm Melissa.
1: And I'm Everett.
0: This week, we'll continue once again with our discussion of sex, and this time, we'll focus on mating strategies. As we discussed, mating is arguably more important than survival, so you'd expect to see some really complicated and intricate adaptations to facilitate that, which we do. So, after two episodes of bashing males for being costly and efficient and, dare I say, unnecessary, I will now say this about males. Maybe we didn't need them, per se, but the antics a male animal gets up to in finding a mate are awesome, kind of awful, and just all-around fascinating. They bring in lots of beauty and color into the world, for one thing. And yes, it is almost always the male. Aren't there any exceptions, you ask? Well, that's a good question. And the answer is, of course, yes. There's always exceptions. But I'll tell you about those later. What I will say now is that this issue really comes down to gametes. Of course. Animals that make eggs are generally more picky when it comes to choosing their mates than the ones that make sperm because of the vastly different amount of investment involved in those um, and now there are a whole lot of different strategies that animals use so it's gonna be a long episode <laughs> that and i was not at all committed to brevity while writing this i just love this stuff so much good i say let's dive right in with the third and final part of the evolution of sex
1: okay teach me something
0: awesome so, the first strategy we're going to talk about um, is called sequential hermaphrodit- hermaphroditism. Wow, hermaphroditism? That's... I, I'm going to say hermaphroditism instead okay. of hermaphroditism. That's, that's quite a, the word. Yeah, I can't do it, it's a mouthful. Um, it just means switching sexes uh, from one to the other during an organism's lifetime. And plants do it a lot. Um, in animals, it's seen mostly in aquatic species. Polyheatworms, worms, shrimp, smallest fish, and the like. Um, first, what's the, what's the theory behind why animals might do this? Um, the thought is that natural selection favors changing sexes when the animal's reproductive success is based on their age or their size. Sure. But the two sexes have different um, dependence on age or size. So that's a little confusing of a sentence, but some examples should help. So let's talk about fish. Fish, unlike most other animals, continue to grow as adults. And as a function of this, larger females, they just have more eggs. They're okay. bigger, they have room for more eggs. So um, this would favor a strategy where the fish start out male okay. and switch to female as they grow large. There's no advantage to being female when you're small, and then there is when you're large. That makes sense. Okay. Um, however, when male fish will fight over access to mates, it kind of favors being male later because bigger males be big. are more successful, bigger or smaller males don't win fights. Right. So you want to be female when you're smaller and when you're bigger, you want to be male. So it's an example of depending on how, um, an animal's lifestyle is structured, why they might want to do one of the other strategies. So let's talk about a real example. And I'm sure most of you know this one already If you don't, it'll be fun. So uh, Finding Nemo has some inaccuracies from a biology standpoint.
1: No. Shocking. It's basically a textbook.
0: Shocking. They do have a pretty good scene where that manta ray teacher guy is singing a little underwater song and he's singing Mm -hmm. about all the phyla under the sea. He got those, got those right. Um, Okay. So clownfish, (laughs) clownfish live in pairs or small groups made up of a dominant female um, who's like really big. A breeding male and then a bunch of all or like smaller immature juvenile fish. Um, they have like a really strict social hierarchy, which is based on how big they are. And then the hierarchy is like a waiting list for breeding. You're pretty much in line depending on your size. Okay. So if the dominant female dies, a la Finding Nemo, all the subordinates are gonna use this opportunity to ascend in rank and grow in size.
1: The so male. They, do they not grow if there's no? Uh, reason to grow? Like, if the breeding... If the dominant female is alive, will none of the other fish grow at that time?
0: Not appreciably. There will be some growth. But there's a certain hormonal reaction that is um, being suppressed by having the dominant female there. Sure. Anyways, um, long story. But they'll grow much more Mm -hmm. all of a sudden on these occasions. So yeah, if the dominant female dies then the who the, the male that was currently the male is going to get bigger and turn into the dominant breeding female. Okay. The biggest immature will then grow, turn into the breeding male. And all the other immatures are going to grow a bit and move, kind of move up a, a rung on the ladder, right? Um. So needless to say, Marlin would have become Nemo's new mom. Makes sense. And Nemo should have had a brand new dad who was brand new to being a male.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Are are all the immature ones females?
0: They're undifferentiated. Oh. They haven't differentiated their sex.
1: Okay.
0: Yet. Um, (laughs) So so clearly I have to point this out because animated children's movies are known for their 100% scientifically accurate information. So this is some big news. I am blowing the top off this story, guys. Mm
1: -hmm. And see, the whole time I thought fish going out and be able to touch butts was a real thing.
0: I'm sorry to have ruined your day, burst your bobble. Yeah. Um, so looking at a second example where it works the other way, there's another tropical reef fish, um, Pseudoantheus squamapinis, which are called the goldie, and apparently like ten other names, too many names. They live in the Indian Ocean in uh similar types of groups, but their group consists of about 10% male, and the rest are kind of a mix of female and immatures. Males are like really big and really red and the others are smaller and orange. So you can really see this sure. change. Really, it's obvious. Um, so if the group loses a male, the largest female starts growing and she turns red. Okay. And into a male.
1: <laughs> okay. The, Both.
0: Yeah. And then the immature switches to female. They kind of do it as needed to keep that ratio of immature to female at a pretty balanced um, place. And then, going back to what he said before, this is a species that the males fight over access to females. That's okay. why it's more advantageous to be male when you're larger. Makes sense. So another strategy males can employ is self-sacrifice.
1: Hmm.
0: It's fairly common in the animal world, but it's like usually invertebrates and such. Right? Um, the most common form of self-sacrifice is just complete uh cannibalism like a <laughs> by the female upon the male like or, the praying uh, mantis like black widow
1: or something like, like that like black
0: widow like scorpions it's yep. it's very largely seen in arthropods and especially in the arachnid family there right um and i mean it's not surprising that females eat their mates they're really very vulnerable while they're copulating and it's easy prey
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know these are bugs no morals are involved here um but the surprising thing is that the males are so accepting of it There's no resistance, no attempt to get away, no adaptations against it. It just seems that they only expect to mate once in your life. So the best strategy in terms of fitness is to let the female eat. Mm -hmm. The male is a good source of nutrition for her. And it's a simple way for him to contribute towards nutritional needs of his offspring. Right. It's the only way he'll be able to. Um, But not only aren't there adaptations against being eaten, but they're actually like adaptations to be more efficient about reproducing because you want to get eaten or you know you will get eaten. So it's, it's like an adaptation for being eaten. <laughs> um, so for instance, arthropod species that engage in cannibalism have actually longer average mating times than closer, closely related species that do or that don't have cannibalism, sorry. Right. So, you know, cannibalistic species mate longer. And, you know, the longer you mate, the higher the chance the male's sperm reach the eggs before the female mates again, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it kind of just keeps the female engaged <laughs> in the activity. And, and occupied. Um, yeah, you know, her attention stays focused on on that. Um, so like another, another adaptation is that in some species, um, a male's pre- penis is designed to be a breakaway organ.
1: Oh, good. That
0: when they get eaten, it'll automatically break away and it's, it plugs it the hole of the thing. cloaca of the female. Okay. No, it doesn't continue to do its thing. It just plugs the hole so, so that, that no, no further, other males right. can get in there anytime soon. Obviously, eventually, but anytime yeah. soon, which means that he'll definitely be the father of those eggs.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so besides cannibalism, what other types of extreme self-sacrifice do animals engage in? Well, male animals. Um, Anglerfish. I'm sure you've all heard of anglerfish with their pretty little light. Um, But they live in the deep sea. So encountering another anglerfish is rare. And the likelihood of finding another one, especially a female, is so low. So, you know, when the male finds a female, he must not let her get away. Right. Ever. Mm -hmm. Ever. He's a bit of a stalker. I really? am afraid
1: it doesn't, so much. Of it. Well,
0: he's really a lot of anyways. So he bites her. If he finds a female, he will bite her. He yeah. releases an enzyme that's going to digest the skin of his mouth yeah. and the skin of her body, fusing them together at the level of the blood vessel. So he is a parasite. <laughs> she nourishes him with her blood and uh, he gives her sperm on demand. Which is literally the only thing his body can do anymore. Because he shrinks and withers up and is a sperm machine. Yeah. And uh, so some species of anglerfish, there's like a one male per female thing going on. Hmm. But some females in other species can have up to eight uh, of these little males. It took them a long time to find male anglerfish because they didn't understand that these parasites
1: were, were the male anglerfish.
0: Yeah. Let me be clear. They are vastly smaller than the female Anyway, so that's pretty cool. And uh, there are other things. There are several things males can do to impress the female and to Mm -hmm. maybe Mm -hmm. convince them they're the best mate. They can bring the female a gift. It's always good. Some animals offer their mate a nuptial gift to entice them. That's what they're called in biology, nuptial gifts.
1: Rocks and flowers and dirt.
0: (sighs) Nah, it's food. It's (sighs) always food. Natural gifts are food items that a male gives to the female just prior to or during their copulation.
1: Okay.
0: I'd like to talk about the black-tipped hanging fly, Hylobiticus epicalis. So the male presents the female with a prey insect he's caught. Of course. If it's big enough, then she'll start eating and he'll start with the copulation. But she's only going to let him mate with her while she's eating. The second she's done eating, he's done. And he's out of there. It takes five minutes in these guys before the sperm transfer starts. Really? So they have to calculate a minimum of five minutes to even start their sperm transfer. Holy cow. And it takes 20 minutes to complete the full sperm transfer. So if she leaves before five minutes, he gets literally nothing. Yeah. Anything over five, under 20, he won't be transferring all the sperm. So, obviously, it's in his favor to get a big food gift. Right. But that's tough. Which, you know, again, demonstrates the to point. the females who is the best. Um, after they're done mating, the male and female then fight over the remaining food.
1: Oh, yes. Of course.
0: And scientists have found He's hungry. The- <laughs> I know. It's a lot of work, right? But scientists have found the male wins probably about 92% of the time. Okay. And the thing is... It's not about him being hungry. He wants to bring that to the next woman. Mm. And by woman, I mean female bug. I don't know why sure. I said woman. Anyways. And then maybe the next one. Because researchers found that the highest mating success happened when the male reused the prey item twice. So it was used three separate times. Right. Um, so some argue that that the cannibal thing we just talked about should be considered a special type of nuptial gift.
1: Just happens to be himself. Yeah, exactly.
0: It's not different. Anyway, so that kind of overlaps there. Except
1: that he can't take it to another female afterwards.
0: Yeah, the efficiency is really lacking in that approach. That's right. Um, Another way males can advertise themselves is through vocalizations and songs. I'm sure this brings birds to mind. Of course. Um, So when a male Cassin's finch has been close to a female for a while, then she disappears then the number of songs he sings and the time he spends singing increases dramatically. Um, so this is almost certainly to try to get her to come back, because if she does return, the song frequency and stuff goes down again. Okay. Yeah. Um, so researchers have worked with populations of white-crowned sparrows in California, um, and they try to determine why the females there seem to prefer the local males, and as opposed to, you know, non-local, foreign white crown sparrows um and how could they even tell in the first place so birds can develop regional dialects just like our human accents and human dialect this makes sense of england maritimes versus prairies you know those dialects um and females use this to identify if the male is local or not but why do they care turns out that the local dialect males were less likely to be afflicted with parasites than the non-local dialect males.
1: Really?
0: So no one saying females know that. But subconsciously, they are selecting for the healthier sparrows with this behavior. Okay. And the songs are telling them that. It's been demonstrated in multiple bird species that males that sing more complex songs and... Males that have a larger song repertoire have more mates and also that they're bigger and healthier usually. So the thought is that brain development and proper nutrition drive those traits. Got it. So, you know, that'll give the female better genes for her offspring. So by using that information from songs, she knows something about the male. Okay, there's just so many more things to say about a bird song. It should honestly be its own episode. Probably. Maybe one day. Probably one day. Um, that's like the very tip of the iceberg there. Let's talk about some other types of vocalizations. Uh, males of many different species use vocalizations to warn other males to stay away from their territories. Uh, it's thought that, you know, their calls can give other males pretty accurate information about their size. So in Bufo-Bufo, which is the European toad, researchers found that even if they did an experiment where the toad couldn't see another toad. And was being played calls from those toads. Yeah. And he exhibited fighting behavior um, with a higher-pitched croak. But the deep-pitched croaks, he had more submissive behavior. So, like, they use the pitch of the croak to try to decide how big the other frog might be. And if it's worth fighting or not. Okay. Um. So, like, in a similar vein, there's something called a barking gecko. And as you can imagine, it makes a noise that's pretty distinctive. And it barks. And... In the geckos, they found that the longer the male is, the lower the frequency of his call would be. So, again, other barking geckos can figure out how big this guy might be just from his calls. Elks, as well. You know, the stags roar, is what it's actually called. They stand very far away from each other in the forest, and they roar back and forth. And it's, it's super energetically taxing. So only, like, the top males can roar often for many minutes and... It helps the other male, again, decide whether they should compete or not. Right. And uh, orangutan males, they have throat sacks. And throat sacks can vary in size tremendously amongst the males. Like, you know, there's kind of those, the big alpha male types in orangutans and then the smaller males. So the big males have huge throat sacks because a lot of resonance. Yeah. Their calls can carry for over a kilometer.
1: It's a long ways.
0: Again, it tells smaller males not to go anywhere near this guy because there's no chance. Uh, but what about vocalizations for mates, not just against their rivals? Let's talk about frogs again. Perfect. There's barking tree frogs. Mm-hmm. Barking is apparently popular in amphibians. And and, uh, and chorus frogs. There's a lot of types of chorus frogs. And they gather in hot spots and they call all together, attract females. And this is called chorusing. Cool. Um, so I thought that was cool, but but random side note, we're just going to go down a completely blind alley here. Great. I was wondering why chorus and frogs kept coming up together. Why is it called chorusing? Why are there nice pieces of chorus frogs? What is up with chorus being a thing with frogs, okay? I tried to figure this out online.
1: It's because of all those cartoons with the frogs where they're dancing.
0: Oh, Did you know where those came from?
1: No, no, no. Uh, no, no. That's where the frogs in real <laughs> life came from. <laughs> They learned a chorus from the cartoons.
0: <laughs> and show
1: tunes, obviously.
0: And the cartoons were spontaneously generated. Yes, that's okay. correct. Yeah. But
1: the, the biggest problem that the, the real frogs are is they can't find top hats and canes that fit them.
0: I see. How yeah. disappointing for them.
1: It's true, yeah.
0: Um, I found a possible answer online, and I'm excited about it, so I'm going to share. But again, I'm going to qualify that this is a very possible answer. I didn't find any other explanations. So there's, there's this play... That actually, I I recently listened to for the first time on Let's Talk About Myths, baby podcast. It's called The Frogs, and it's by ancient Greek playwright Aristophanes. Mm -hmm. And in play, which, by the way, won first place in the Festival of Dionysus in 450 BCE. That year, there was was other. yeah, Yeah, there was the Festival of Dionysus almost every year in the summer, and theater and wine. Sounds wonderful, but. Yeah, one first place. And uh, in this play, the frogs are literally the chorus. The chorus are frogs. And then they argue with Dionysus for a bit, but mostly they're just the chorus. Um, And some people think a lot of cartoons, a lot of musicals like Sondheim has a musical inspired by the frogs. Anyway, so it came up through that vein is what I read and I want to believe is the correct information. So I'm just going to stick with it.
1: The important part is that you want to believe. I
0: want to believe it. Mm -hmm. Okay, back on track. Animals also advertise themselves through ornaments and displays.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: We'll do some more bird examples here because birds are fancy.
1: I'm assuming peacocks are going to have to come up here at some point.
0: I know. It's like I didn't want to use the most obvious examples, but I felt like if I didn't throw some of them in, people would be like, how could you not mention a peacock? So... As is probably apparent to you, peahens choose peacocks with the most eye spots on their tails. Yes. That is literally a criteria they use. And the males have that spread and shake display to show these off to the females. What I bet you didn't know, though, is that researchers have spent some time with scissors and tape and paint and glue with birds and they just mess with their feathers a lot so they've done lots of experiments where they would like cut out eye spots on the feathers or paint over them or glue some on other places or add feathers to the tail like they've done a lot of experiments like that um to like manually manipulate the number of eye spots so they could really be sure that it was the number of eye spots that was influencing a peahen and it sure is
1: i just have a question it sounded almost like you weren't talking about researchers but like Grade school students. <laughs> kindergartners.
0: I'm really hoping that the researchers were a little more gentle than a bunch of kindergartners would be with birds.
1: But who has the most, like, recent experience with glue and scissors and tape and paper and drawing? It's usually the kindergartners. I'm
0: imagining our almost kindergarten age child trying to make a bird and put together the feathers. And I don't think it would impress the peahens very much, is all I'm saying. Mm, so I would be
1: impressed. <laughs>
0: Alright, this is a long episode, let's okay. not waste time. In a similar experiment, researchers did a little cut and paste working with long-tailed widow birds. Um, these are African birds, and they, they fly slowly back and forth over their territory, about a meter over the ground, just to show off their magnificent long tail to females.
1: Okay.
0: So, when I say it's magnificent, it's, it's impressively long. Their body is about 20 centimeters long, and, and just the tail is actually over 50 centimeters long. Wow.
1: so um, Two and a half times the size of their body, then.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. So researchers cut the tail feathers of some males, mm-hmm. then glued them on to the tails of other males, and conclusively demonstrated that males with extended tails had a lot more mating success. I mean, it's been shown in like all kinds of fish, birds, lizards, amphibians, yada, yada, yada. That when there's a novel type of ornament, like a new thing that they haven't seen before, then they respond extremely favorably to that. Okay. Which again gives you an idea of how these things could have started and evolved and gotten bigger and bigger over time. Of course. So let's talk about the least auklet, which is a really cute little bird. So <laughs> the experiments are a little funny in, in this vein, but so they got these taxidermied least auklets and they taped. A big kind of crest of feathers onto different places of it. And a small crest, just to compare. Sure. And they found that... Uh, they were trying to decide how often the females would come up to these models and do their kind of uh, sexual display to indicate that they were open to mating with them. And the ones that had large feathers taped to their forehead... The females displayed their sexual display about eight times more often than for the control. So these ornaments are extremely attractive to females. And of course, many animals use some cool dance moves to show off their colors and their ornaments. Yeah. Like jumping spiders, like the peacock spider, do a really cool, intricate dance um, and then show off their colorful abdomen flap. But some animals like to start their stuff at special display grounds. In some species, the males don't fight for mates or to defend an area of resources. They fight to have a very small patch, which they use purely for display purposes. And all the males come together in this larger area called a lek. They fight for the best little patch in the lek.
1: Okay.
0: Um, tons of different animals have lekking as one of their mating strategies. A lot of birds, some antelopes, something like that. Um, and in, in lek courtship there's huge inequalities in male mating success, just like huge. Um, and just as another thing, we've realized that the center position of that luck is the most desirable and most successful position in most all animals we see doing this behavior. I see. Um, the white bearded mannequin, which is a bird, by the way, I wouldn't have known that from the name. <laughs>
1: yeah, I thought it was modern um, in a modern home and store like the bay or something like
0: that. <laughs> a white bearded mannequin. He's just wearing a Santa costume. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um so top males tend to occupy the center of the lek as as I said. And studies found that actually the most successful male participated in seventy five percent of all the matings that wow. occurred. Yeah. And the yeah. next highest is like thirteen percent. So, so it's crazy. Yeah. Those
1: two are pretty much the whole Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the thing with males. Males, I mean, females are probably guaranteed to have a moderate number of babies and they'll all be around the same. And males and animals vary widely. Sure. Like some will have hundreds and some will have zero. Yeah. And the females have between, you know, five and ten, you know, like it's not, it's not the same at all. Um, In the topi antelope, the most senior males get the middle spots and the juniors have the peripheries. Um, But males in the center made it over three times as much as often as the peripheral males. The West African hammerhead bat is another example, a really extreme one, which is really cool. You guys should look up pictures of the West African hammerhead bat. They look so odd and it's amazing. The top 6% of male bats by, you know, by mating success participate in over 80% of the matings. So you kind of see that inequality a lot in lek structure. The next thing I'm going to talk about is bowerbirds. I think a lot of you have seen Bowerbirds on planet Earth and life and all those amazing documentaries that have come out. I had to, but I managed to learn something new about Bowerbirds. So the basics are the male creates a bower to woo the female. And, you know, the simplest ones are kind of narrow tunnels made of sticks and they decorate them with shells or flowers. Yeah. And, um, in more elaborate ones, the entrance tunnels lead to kind of a courtyard with a lot of carefully selected items. They arrange in piles by color and shape and such, very carefully. So females visit multiple bowers, then they kind of take a week-ish break to go build their nest. Because the bower's not a nest, it's just a display ground.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, then they'll start with round two, and they'll revisit all the top contenders again. And then, you know, so she takes like several weeks to really pick the best mate. So the cool new things I've learned is that many male bowerbirds use color illusions to make their items seem more impressive. They'll chew up red fruit or flowers into really small pieces and then completely line the bower with them. And the theory is after the female stares at that red for a while, then all the green and blue items that he has found will pop and be more striking in color because of that Fatigue that your eyes get with red color. You've probably seen versions of that type of optical optical illusion circulating online. I know I have. And in addition to the color, geometry is important in a bower. So male bowerbirds will put larger items farther away from the entrance and smaller items closer to the entrance and make a narrow entrance tunnel. So that focuses the attention on the bower and helps make the male bower bird look larger and more impressive because you've kind of tried to eliminate that thing where things farther away look smaller than they are. And anyway, so they use color illusion and geometric illusion to make themselves and their bowers look more impressive. I think that's super cool. It is cool. Um, So speaking of coloration, that's obviously another important signal In stickleback fish, males with redder bellies are more attractive to the females. Um, The red color actually comes from carotenoids in their diet, and researchers discovered a diet high in carotenoids is actually correlated with increased parental ability and,
1: Hmm.
0: and the redder bellies. Sure. So how, you ask? I know you didn't ask, but... I'm sure you were thinking it. (laughs) Male stickleback fish fan their eggs to give them oxygen in low oxygen um, situations, which tend to happen where sticklebacks live.
1: Okay.
0: So the male that can fan the most and for longer is, is ranked as having higher parental abilities. Males that have higher carotenoid levels are able to fan for longer.
1: Just more energy, more stamina.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, many, many species have females that are attracted to red and yellow coloration. These are colors normally produced through those carotenoids. Okay. Okay. The intensity of the colors might reveal something about the health of the male, because carotenoids are known to enhance immune system.
1: Okay.
0: So those tend to be linked together and correlated. Um, the colors will help the female pick the mate that will give her the best offspring, whether we're speaking about genetics or we're speaking about providing for the young. So researchers performed a cross-fostering experiment with the blue tit. Again, that's a bird. Mm-hmm. Um, cross-fostering is what it sounds like. It is swapping eggs from one nest into another, back and forth. Um, and, and, and researchers do this a lot with birds because it gives us a good like, idea of what might be nature, what might be nurture, sure, what's a mix, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so when they did this with the blue tits, they found that the size of the fledgling chicks, so the ones ready to leave the nest, mm-hmm. um, it was actually dependent on the brightness of their foster father's yellow feathers.
1: Interesting. But
0: not dependent on the brightness of their biological father's yellow feathers. So here's the thinking, is that the more high value carotenoid rich food that the male can find for himself, thus being more yellow. Yeah the more food he's likely to be able to find for the offspring thus making them bigger
1: and develop faster because you're talking about how quickly they leave the nest right
0: not how quickly they leave the nest the size of the fledgling when it's written. when
1: they leave the nest yes. okay understood
0: so he he makes better babies through parenting not through genetics but okay. that's also an important thing for the female right yeah blue color is popular in fish and birds It's rare in mammals, but it does exist in, you know, mandrel monkey, vervet monkey, opossums, and some others. Yeah. And the brighter blues are correlated with higher mating success. Here's a side note. Because they have, mm, recently in scientific terms, kind of explored more how blue might appear in a mammal. In mammal skin, like in the mandrels and the vervet monkeys and such. Okay. And it turns out that... So, the collagen fibers in skin usually go any which way direction wise. Okay. Blue skin actually has a different structure, a different underlying structure. So, this collagen fibers are all aligned in a parallel manner. Mm hmm. And the distance between the fibers matters as well. Sure. So, the farther apart the fibers are, the paler the blue color is. And they've discovered it's a similar principle to what makes the sky blue. Oh. It's scattering of light and reflection of light, so that certain wavelengths are more often reflected in different directions. And yeah. blue is all reflected out towards us seeing it, and other colors are more as they reflected back in. Yes. Yeah. Um, I thought that was cool. It's cool. So you can look nice, and you can sound nice, and you can be nice. But what about smelling nice? Pheromones or chemical messages a species uses to communicate with other members of its own species. Mm -hmm. They don't have to be used for sexual purposes at all. They're just communication, but they often are. And I think that's what people know them for. Sure. Um, The identification of pheromones started in the 1950s when scientists found something they called bombacol in the scent glands of female silk moths. Then they found the same substance in the secretory glands of male silk moth and realized that he was using it as an attractant. Pheromones are really, really important for insects. Um, They operate on a very mechanical, instinctual nature, but as animals kind of get more complex and depend more on learning, their effectiveness is a little less, um, they're, they're a little more limited in use after that, but that's not to say that there's no role for pheromones in other animals. Mammals, for instance, use pheromones to advertise their territory and attract females, just like insects. Uh, male boars actually have several different attractive pheromones in their saliva. Female hamsters release an attractant pheromone known as aphrodisian from their vagina. Mm-hmm. Good place, I guess, for it to come from. Sure. And, uh, you know, most mammals pee or poop or rub themselves on things to advertise their territory or their sexual status. I think we've yeah. all seen pets and other animals do that. Yeah. Um. So that's a lot, of, a lot of ways that males can tell the female how valuable they are. Right. Now, a different type of strategy. One where there's less flamboyance and more cost-benefit analysis. We're going to go from Vegas shows to an accountant's office.
1: Well, that's boring. But well, I do like accounting, so I think I'd probably rather go there.
0: Don't offend any accountants, okay? I know a few. Mm-hmm. I know I've mentioned it before, but what, again, do you remember why aren't males usually picky?
1: Well, because they don't have to, like, actually gestate the young so they can just go from one female to another. They have the ability to just keep copulating, basically. Yeah. And reproducing.
0: Exactly. I mean, again, it's that whole... It's not just what happens after. It's, a—it's again, no, that sperm or a dime a dozen and
1: yeah.
0: eggs are... Ugh, they're just so energetically costly to produce. Um, and a much more limited supply at that. So females, you know, they can't afford to be reckless. Mm-hmm. Usually. This isn't to say there aren't males who are picky. The general rule is that the more the male of the species has to invest into provisioning for his young, the more picky he will be. So obviously in some species, the male and female both take a role in providing for their offspring, and in those we see strategies in both sexes to pick the mate who'll be most helpful. Right. But in a few species, the male is the sole incubator sex, and females then compete over access to males.
1: So let me guess, penguins and seahorses?
0: Not really penguins, no.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Just because the male penguins incubate the egg for a certain period of time doesn't mean that the females don't help provision for the young. Right. They're one of those more equal species okay. that both kind of try to find the most helpful mate. Um, so anyways, this is referred to as male mate choice, unsurprisingly, or sex role reversal is kind of a more common term. Um, so, So fish, some male fish display really high levels of parental care. You, again, probably know of the seahorse and pipefish, closely related. Females deposit their eggs into the male's brooding pouch, and then they have no further involvement. So in seahorses, it's been shown, which makes sense, that males are choosy and females are not. So females will mate with anything. Males are looking for the largest females. Females are going to compete, and males will select the most large and ornamental females. Mm-hmm. As we talked about with fish before, bigger females will have more eggs. This is why he does this.
1: Perfect.
0: Amphibians, um, the male poison dart frogs, Dendrobates auratus, take on like a really active parenting role as well. Um, and in some species, the males will call to attract the females to the nesting site, and then the females are going to fight over the best nest to put their eggs in. The male's going to fertilize them, and he's going to defend them and care for the young until they're independent. Uh, in birds, obviously, they're normally biparental in care, but there might be just maternal or just paternal care. Sure. An easy way to predict male parental involvement in birds is to look at the degree of sexual dimorphism in that species. That makes sense. So how different do the male and female look? Yeah. Do you want to bet on whether a peacock has any role in raising those chicks?
1: No, not at all. And I would assume this because the more ornamental the male is, the less involvement they have with the young, whereas if you went the other direction, you started getting to Ornamental females, those would be the cases or signs that the male has the most parental care.
0: You're such a good student.
1: Mm. <laughs> good. Are these <just> nose patterns? <laughs>
0: yeah. So, an example of a bird where the male does all the work is a jacana, which is a wading bird that lives in the subtropical and tropical parts of the Americas. Um, and the male jacana will provide all the parental care after the eggs have been laid by the female. So he incubates the eggs and defends the nest. And they invest a lot of time and energy into the offspring. So females compete for the right to lay their eggs in an established nest. And the females actually, so exactly, sexual reversal. They're bigger. They mate with multiple males. They fight bloody fights to defend these nests. They have little harems of up to four mates at once. And they defend that whole area. And they have very violent fights over it. Um, So it's it's sexual reversal. It's exactly the opposite for the same reasons, though. There aren't any known cases of sexual reversal in mammals or anything like that, though. Unfortunately, that would be cool. I don't think you could argue it for humans. I think humans have to be a split type of species. Um, But next up is a really important strategy for securing mating opportunities, which is physical competition. Right. Outright fighting among males is one of the most common features of life on Earth. Yeah. This leads to sexual dimorphism in size, where males tend to be larger than females. Males ranging from spiders to dinosaurs and beetles to rhinoceroses, they've evolved weapons. Horns, tusks, antlers, club tails, spiky legs, and large canines, on and on and on. I mean, have you seen like a mandrel or baboon, have you seen yeah. the canines on those things? Holy cow. They don't use those to eat, otherwise females would need them too. I'm not going to talk much about fighting. It's just really obvious and it's really prevalent, and I think everyone knows a lot about it. I just wanted to talk about um, one discovery and study they did on a horned scarab beetle. Because there's, there's a trade-off to expending your metabolic energy making these weapons, right? Yeah. If you take from you know, somewhere to make these big weapons... You have to, you know, shortchange another area. So in these horned scarab beetles, they have found, obviously a smaller male is less likely to be successful at fighting, even if they grow a large weapon. If their body size is small, they're not going to be very successful. So there seems to be a point where a developmental decision is made during the larval stage. And when I say decision, I'm using some air quotes again, because this is not on purpose. It's pretty complicated how the developmental switch is flipped hormonally and such. But when it's clear that the male is not going to have a large body, the investment is diverted from the horn to the testicles. Hmm. Males can't have both a large horn and large testicles. Large testicles mean more sperm and more chance to fertilize a female when they do sneak that chance to mate. Right. Large horn means more chances to mate, but maybe less sperm. Okay. So there's, you know, everything in life is a trade-off, is what I'm trying yeah, to competing say.
1: competing forces in that case.
0: Exactly. Mate guarding is another really popular strategy found in all types of animals. I mean, after all, access to mating is an extremely valuable resource, so it makes sense to guard it, right? That's
1: yeah, like the sole purpose for, or arguably the sole purpose for them being alive.
0: Yes. In mammals, it's really popular in primates. Baboons, yep. langurs, howler monkeys, gorillas, I could go on. Also in pinnipeds, mm-hmm. elephant seal, fur seal, sea lion. There's tons more that are they're really they're really violent and they have a lot of big um, big harems where yeah. the males are guarding their mates. Um, it's mostly a male thing to keep harems, but we talked about the jacana.
1: Yep.
0: Um, another bird that does that is the female spotted sandpiper. She has harems of up to eight males generally. Um. But males don't necessarily need to be guarding their females all the time. Researchers studied the savannah baboon, and they're really surprised when they saw that males of every social rank seemed to mate with about equal frequency. It didn't make sense to them to have this hierarchy, if that was the case. When they started to keep track of when the matings happened, between Mm -hmm. which monkeys, they found that during the three-day period that the females were fertile, like every cycle, um, That's when almost all the mating involved dominant males. So dominant males, to keep the peace, don't guard their mates all the time. They let the other males have a little, throw them a bone other times and then make sure that it's worth the energy investment for them to guard very carefully for those
1: days. When it's important. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: But of course, if another male is trying to mate with a female, interfering is an option. Of course. Males of many species are going to harass other males while they're copulating, and some go so far as to pry other males off the female in the middle and interrupt the coitus. Um, reptiles and amphibians largely do this. Primates do some, some of it too. Um, and, and this obviously pre- prevents the male from transferring his sperm into the female, unless he's tricky, like the marine iguana. In the marine iguana, small males have an impossibly hard time mating for the required three minutes they need before they ejaculate because a large male will come and rip them off and a large male is like twice their size okay so they've evolved a strategy to combat this they ejaculate uh prematurely sure but keep the sperm inside their body and, okay. and and I and, and imagine this is this is easier when you're a reptile and your penis is kept inside your body. Sure. Okay. Then they find a female and they begin mating and they're able to transfer that sperm right away instead right. of waiting to ejaculate. Um, that's not the only species where this type of adaptation has evolved. Um, the blackwing damselfly, the males have a special like appendage and technique to remove rival's sperm from the female before he mates with her. Really? Mm-hmm. There's all types of different sperm competition that I'm not getting into. Um, again, the thing about large testicles are predicted in really polygamous species, whereas monogamous species have small testicles because of those trade-offs I mentioned.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, there's a lot of trade-offs between size of sperm. Drosophila, for instance, those little fruit flies, I think they have the world record for the largest sperm for body size. I think they're like, they're all curled up inside, but it's like several times larger than a male, one of their sperms. Wow. Yeah, it's intense because it fills up the female and she can't have any other sperm in her. Anyways, sperm is fascinating. Male bowerbirds that we've talked about there, they actually try to ruin the bowers of other males if they get the chance. (laughs) Thievery and vandalism are really important parts of bowerbird competition. Yeah. Yeah. Screw you and your red. I'm going to ruin your <laughs> bower. And a last resort for many males is to employ tricky behaviors. Mm, tricky. Let's say you're a male animal. Okay. Let's say you're a different type of male animal.
1: Oh. You are a male okay. animal. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was going to say this is easy, but <laughs> all right, fine.
0: You've had no success, and you've tried everything, and you listened to this podcast for tips, and you tried the whole list. Wow. But still nothing. What, like, what else could you even possibly do here? Be tricky. Here's my advice as an advice columnist Have you tried being friends first?
1: No, it wasn't and in the list. And then
0: moving on <laughs> into copulation. Um, this is, again, mostly seen in primates with more complicated social structures. Sure. But low ranking males will try to develop friendships with particular females. They don't, not all females, they don't go around with all females and do this, but they'll pick mm. one. Yeah. And they'll show her that they'll protect her offspring, that they're a good protector for her offspring. The better they do at this and other things to woo her into friendship, the more chance she is to, again, throw a one when the dominant male is not looking. Mm -hmm. So this is a valid strategy um, that lets the males mate with a fertile female sometimes. You could try also making friends with another male primates again, will, okay. you know, sometimes lions, big cats, cheetahs, anyways, they'll have allies, maybe two males that sure. will compete together against the dominant male to win the chance to mate with the females. Of course, both of them would then get the chance to do that. Mm-hmm. You could be sneaky and hide while you're mating. You could hide from the dominant male. Low ranking baboons hide in bushes. I know how funny that sounds, but they do that. Yep. And there's, Gray seal males, the young ones that aren't likely to mate any other way, will actually try to sneakily mate in the surf or shallow water when their mating is normally done on the beach. So it's a they see. can hide. And of course, you could always just pretend to be a female mm-hmm. until you sneak close enough to make your move. This is female mimicry, and it's seen all over the animal kingdom. Yeah, so, uh, mostly birds and, and marine animals. Yeah. Sandpipers, cuttlefish, Cuttlefish. marine isopods. Cuttlefish, again, It's the one you've heard of, but I thought I'd include it anyways. Because they're really interesting. They're unique among the ones they listed in that they have control over this behavior. This is not a genetic strategy that they're born with to they're just small, so they'll be mistaken for females. This is a choice that they're actively making every time they have a possible mating encounter. No other animals do that in that way. So if no other male is around or they're the biggest and baddest male that they know in the area, then they can just be a male. They'll be a male. They'll mate with a female. Right. But let's say there's other big males around or there's literally currently a mating going on with another male. Then the cuttlefish will present as a female. Yeah. And sneak close. And the other male doesn't mind. And as soon as he's done, that little close female looking cuttlefish can sneak in there and get the job done real quick and uh it's just it's just fascinating to me because they, they do have to make those choices and they have to evaluate those cost benefits every yeah. time um so there you have it animals have like a plethora of strategies to pick and choose from and, and they can combine them in a number of ways which obviously limited by their genetics and environment um and in, Sorry, this episode is so long. This is probably my favorite thing to learn about in the whole world. And trust me, I could have written hundred more pages if I thought anyone would listen for that long. There's so much that I didn't include here. Next episode, we're going to change gears entirely and get into some mythology. Excellent. Probably Japanese, possibly something else. I'm really not willing to commit because I haven't written it yet.
1: Mm, Yes, this makes sense.
0: (laughs) But thank you so much, everyone, for taking the time to listen to Teach Me Something. I'm Melissa.
1: And I'm Everett.
0: I hope you learned something new.